city of Rome burned in 64 AD and the Emperor Nero assigned the blame to Christians. Throughout the Roman Empire, he declared open season on Christians and they were being thrown to the lions, they were being burned at the stake, they were being impaled and used as torches. And that's the context into which Peter writes this letter about a year later in 65 AD. That's why Peter addresses the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, to those who have been scattered from their homes and are living as aliens. That's why he uses the word suffering 16 times. That's why in chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about the fiery ordeal among you. These people knew what it was like to experience resistance. They were not just facing an apathetic society, they were facing an angry society. They were swimming upstream against the current of a hostile culture. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're experiencing opposition, opposition to your faith. Now, you're certainly not in threat of being dragged off to the Colosseum. But you may be experiencing a cold shoulder, an implied threat, a slanderous word. How do you react to resistance? Well, Peter is going to tell us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 to 16. In these verses, he gives us a checklist of things to do in the face of resistance. He's going to give us five things we need to get right in order to react properly to resistance. Those five things are a right passion, a right perspective, a right priority, a right posture, and a right prevention. First of all, a right passion, verse 13. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now the word zealous is the Greek word zealotai. It means to be ardently passionate about. It means to crave after. It was a word used in the first century of a political group in Israel known as the Zealots. One of the disciples was in that political party. His name was Simon the Zealot. They were fanatical patriots. They had such a passionate love for their country that they were willing to die for it. And Peter says, you and I are to have that same zeal and that same passion for what? For good. Now people get passionate about a whole lot of things today. And while most people would not care to be called fanatics, they will gladly accept the shorter term, fan. You will say, I am a Cardinal fan, I am a Ram fan, I am a Pokemon fan, I am a Tiger Woods fan. Well, just think about the interest and the intensity and the passion that you put into that. And Peter is saying we're to put that same zeal, that same fanaticism, that same passion into doing good. Could you be categorized as a fan of good? Or are you someone who drags his feet when it comes to doing good? I'd like to play golf on Sunday, but I gotta go to church. 
I'd like to go to the mall, but I promise to watch my neighbor's kids. I'd like to stay home today, but I committed myself to work in vacation Bible school. You know, that's not the way fans respond. Fans spend the morning painting their face blue and gold. And fans get to the game two hours early just to watch batting practice. And fans listen to the radio on the way home, hoping to hear an interview with their favorite player. They are passionate about it. And Peter says, you and I are to be a fan of good. And then he adds an incentive in verse 13. He says, if you do, who is there to harm you? If you have a passion for doing good for others, you're probably not going to be harmed. Because even in this fallen world, people typically return good for good. Most people adhere to the motto, one good turn deserves another. What goes around comes around. Do unto others as they have done unto you. Most people like to have neighbors who have moral integrity, who feed their cat when they're on vacation, who watch their kids for an hour or two, who water their plants, who give them a hand, who do good. You see, this is a general principle that if you do good, you probably will not receive resistance. And of course, the reverse is also true. If you don't do good, you probably will receive resistance. Heard about a man who called his mom to tell her how he was doing in a new city, and he told her he'd found an apartment and pretty well settled in. She said, well, how are the neighbors? He said, well, they're kind of strange. The man above me just keeps banging his fist on the floor, and the woman below me just keeps screaming and moaning. She said, well, you'd better stay to yourself. He said, oh, I am. I'm just staying in my apartment and playing my bagpipes. <laughs> a college student was showing off his new apartment to some friends. One of them asked, well, what is that big brass gong and hammer in the middle of your living room? He said, oh, that's the talking clock. How does it work? He said, well, I'll show you. And he took the hammer out and he made an ear-shattering pound on the gong. And suddenly, from behind the other side of the wall came this voice, Knock it off, you idiot! It's two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the talking clock. You know, for some of us, our biggest problem in relationships is ourselves. And if your neighbors are knocking on the floor and yelling through the walls, it may not be your Christian witness that they have a problem with. You see, you may be encountering resistance simply because you're offensive. And Peter recognizes that, and so the first thing on his checklist is a right passion. Be passionate about doing good, and you will probably diffuse most of the resistance. But then he gives us the second thing, and that is a right perspective in verse 14. Notice, but even if you should suffer, don't you love that? 
Verse 13 says, who in the world is ever going to harm you if you're zealous for good? Verse 14 says, but somebody might. You see, there's no guarantee that you're not going to suffer. In fact, there are many scriptures that indicate that you can plan on it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You say, well, why would I suffer if I'm doing good? Well, Peter tells you in verse 14, he says, it's for the sake of righteousness. Joseph went to prison for doing what was right with Potiphar's wife. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace for doing what was right. Daniel went into the lion's den for doing what was right. The apostles were martyred for doing what was right. Jesus went to the cross for doing what was right. You can suffer for righteousness' sake. And Peter says, when that happens, you need to have the right perspective. Because the right perspective will give you two revolutionary approaches to suffering. The first approach will be, you won't despair. Verse 14. And even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now that word blessed literally means happy. You say, well, how can I be happy when I'm suffering? Well, we could look at a lot of passages, but you know, Peter just quoted a passage in verses 10 to 12. It was Psalm 34. And I want you to just take a moment and turn back to Psalm 34. Because Psalm 34 is a psalm that gives us the equation for how to love life and have a good day. And you know what I find interesting in this psalm? David talks in verse 4 about all his fears. He talks in verse 6 about all his troubles. He talks in verse 18 about the brokenhearted. He talks in verse 19 about the many afflictions of the righteous, which tells me that a good day for a believer is not necessarily a day free from problems. What constitutes a good day? Well, David tells us a good day is one in which I magnify the Lord. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. A good day is one in which I receive answered prayer. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. A good day is one in which I taste the goodness of God. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in Him. And a good day is one in which I I sense the nearness of God. Verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. You see, someone can look at your life and say, he's having a bad day. When in reality, you may be having a good day to the glory of God. You see, when you have the right perspective, you can be happy even in the midst of suffering. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those 
who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. There are two aspects to the blessing we enjoy in suffering. One is a present aspect, and that is that I sense the presence of God in a special way in the midst of suffering. Horatio G. Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago. He had a lovely wife and four children. On one occasion, he had to stay home while they were traveling at sea. He received word that the ship that they were on had struck another ship and gone down. And so he sat at home for two weeks with no word of the whereabouts of his family. What he didn't know was that his wife had been rescued from the chilly water, but all four of his children had died. And when she got back to port, she sent him this message, Saved alone. And she signed it. And as he sat in his home with tears and sorrow and a breaking heart, in the midst of his unshattered faith, he wrote these now famous words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, with my soul. In the midst of suffering, he experienced the blessing of the presence of God in a special way. And then there's another way we experience that blessing, and that is in a future aspect, because the promises of God, not just the presence of God, but the promises of God become very real to us. John Bunyan was thrown into Bedford Prison for preaching Christ. It was in that prison cell that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, But he also wrote this. He said, This prison very sweet to me hath been since I came here, and so would also hanging be if Christ didst then appear. You see, the right perspective gives you a revolutionary approach to suffering. You won't despair. And then secondly, you won't fear. Look at the end of verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now, Peter knew something about fear. He was so afraid of a little servant girl in the courtyard that he denied the Lord three times. But here he quotes Isaiah 8, where the people of Israel were afraid because the Assyrian army was coming up against them. And he quotes it saying, Do not fear, do not be intimidated, do not be troubled. In the midst of threatening accusations, in the midst of threats, even to take our lives, we don't have to be afraid. Life magazine did an article on the five missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador in 1955. In it, they described how Nate Saint was reading with his children one night before bed. And as he read the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and his tremendous spirit in the face of death, Nate Saint broke down and began to weep and couldn't finish the story. And so Life magazine added this footnote. We gathered that he seemed to know that the effort he was going into was going to cost him 
his life. And it did. And whether you and I actually have to experience that kind of threat or not, we need the right perspective to handle it. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The word witnesses is the Greek word martyr. Jesus said, You shall be my martyrs. What is a martyr? He's someone who stands for a cause all the way to death. That should be true of us already spiritually. We have died to self. We are alive to God. So that if ever the opportunity presents itself physically, it will be no big step for us. You see, the sufferings that you experience today are just a degree of that martyrdom to which you have already been called. And when we have that perspective, we have no fear. Third thing Peter talks about is a right priority. In verse 15, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, you can't have a right perspective without first having a right priority. You will never overcome the fear of man until you replace it with the fear of God. In fact, in verse 14, where Peter quotes from Isaiah 8:12, do not fear, the next verse says, the Lord of hosts shall be your fear. Do not fear this people, fear the Lord. Peter says it this way, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now that's a great little exhortation and one that you ought to underline in your Bible. How do you set apart Christ as Lord? Well, that's real simple. Because when Christ is Lord of your heart, two things should be evident. One is worship. You see, you will worship whoever is on the throne of your heart. And in order to make sure it's Christ on the throne of your heart, you have to get rid of his stiffest competition. And you know who that is? You know who it is that so often shows up perched on the throne of your heart? It's you. You see, your sinful nature leads you to be a no-holds-barred usurper of the throne of your heart. And Peter says that throne belongs to Jesus Christ. And so your first step must be down. You must take yourself off the throne of your life and bow down to Jesus Christ and acknowledge that He is Lord. Worship is the first evidence. Second evidence is obedience. You see, when you get Him in His proper place as Lord, then you will find yourself in your proper place, which is servant. And what does a servant do? He obeys his Lord. One of, mo- one of the most convicting verses in all the New Testament is Luke six forty six, where Jesus asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Why do you call me Lord and don't obey me? You see, that title implies obedience. Have you set Jesus Christ apart as Lord in your life? Is it evident by your worship of Him and your obedience of Him? That's a right priority. And then fourthly, a right posture. Verse 15 continues, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The right posture when we're facing resistance is seen in those words, ready to make a defense. The word defense is the Greek word apologia, from which we get our word apology. But it doesn't mean an apology like, I'm sorry. It means an apologetic. A speech in defense of. And then he goes on to say, we're to give an account. That's the Greek word logos, from which we get our word logic. So Peter says, you are to be ready to make a logical defense. You see, you are to have an account of your testimony and an arrangement of the explanation of the gospel already prepared ahead of time in your mind. You are to be ready. You say, well, when am I supposed to give that defense? Well, Peter says you're to give that defense whenever anybody asks you. See, Peter says you're not to force your ideas on someone else. Your lifestyle should be raising questions. And what is it specifically in your lifestyle that people ought to be seeing? Well, look at the verse, verse 15. It is the hope that is in you. People ought to be able to see the reality of the hope inside of you by the way you live your life. You know when hope shows up most clearly? In hopeless situations. Hope hope doesn't show up real clearly when everything's going well. Hope shows up real clearly when everything's going wrong. When you get a pink slip at work, when the doctor says, I've got some bad news. When you get divorce papers from your spouse. See, that's when people are expecting you to respond in despair and respond in fear. Instead, Peter says, they ought to see hope. Because that's the nature of our hope. Peter said in chapter 1 and verse 3 that we have a living hope, a hope that cannot be killed, a hope that transcends circumstances. I heard about a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and told that she only had a short time to live, and so she contacted her pastor to discuss her funeral. She told him the songs that she wanted to have sung. She told him the scriptures she wanted to have read. And then she made a rather unusual request. She said, I would like to be laid in the casket with a fork in my right hand. Well, he looked at her rather puzzled, and then she went on to explain. She said, whenever I ate at someone else's house, and they were cleaning the dishes off from the main course, my favorite words were, keep your fork. Because those words always told me the best was yet to come whether it was velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. And then she said, Pastor, I'm keeping my fork because the best is yet to come. 
You see, that is an expression of our hope. And if ever there was an age without hope, it is our age. We have removed the teaching of God from our schools. We have eliminated him completely in our secular society. And then on top of that, we hear every day about the threat of nuclear war, environmental pollution, racism, drugs, crime, corruption, AIDS. No wonder our teenagers are living like there's no tomorrow. No wonder suicide is so prevalent today. We live in a day with no hope. And against that background, Peter says, your hope ought to be so evident that people are asking you about it. You say, well, when are they going to ask me? Well, you never know. And that's why Peter says, you're always to be ready. When I played basketball, my coach used to preach the old cliche, the best offense is a good defense. I used to go in one ear and out the other until we started playing a 1-3-1 defense and he put me at the point on the 1-3-1 defense, which meant I was the closest guy to our goal. So if we played defense and got a steal, that meant I got a layup. So I was committed to playing defense, but I was always ready to play offense at any moment. You see, that's the posture Peter is talking about here. He's saying you're always to be ready to give a defense when someone asks you about your hope. See, you never know when somebody's going to ask. You never know when an opportunity may arise. Peter knew what, what it was like to miss an opportunity. In the courtyard, he, he received the question, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Great opportunity. But Peter denied it because he wasn't ready. And so his exhortation to you and I is, is be ready to make a defense. Now, when someone does ask you, you not only have to be careful to have your words prepared, you also need to be careful to have your attitude prepared. And Peter mentions two words at the end of verse 15 that tell us that. He says we're to do it with gentleness. The emphasis is not on being dogmatic, it's on being gentle. You know, there are some Christians who are prepared to make a defense and who know the Scriptures very well, but I am fairly certain that that if I were unsaved, they couldn't lead me to Christ. You know why? Because they're not gentle. They're like a bull in a china closet. And Peter says, you're to say it with gentleness. You're to say it with love. Don't hurl people down and put your heel on their throat and say, you're going to hell if you don't repent. Peter says we are to be gentle in the way we answer people. You see, the spirit in which a statement is made may matter with some people much more than the content itself. Peter says you say it, even with people who are resisting you, you say it with gentleness. And then secondly, he says you say it with reverence. 
You're not to be flippant about the gospel. It's no light matter. And one of the things that agitates me is people who are flippant, who are rather off the cuff about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in humor. I believe it's God-given. I believe it's an excellent communication tool. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a joke. And when I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with someone else, there's always a heavy nervousness in the pit of my stomach because I know that their eternal destiny is at stake. It's a reverent moment. It's a moment when I am awestruck by the power of the gospel in the life of someone else. And so it's always to be done with gentleness and reverence. I'm always to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in me. That's the right posture. And then fifthly, Peter says, we're to have a right prevention, verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Now, God has built into each one of us a means of prevention. It is your conscience. Your conscience is that internal voice that either approves or disapproves of your actions. And Peter says, keep a good conscience. See, if you don't keep a good conscience, the question, questions people will have will not be about your hope. Their questions will be about your hypocrisy. How do you keep a good conscience? Well, first of all, you have to program it properly. You have to feed the Word of God. Let the light of the Word of God in so that your conscience is programmed to respond to the right truth. And secondly, you have to respond properly then to your conscience with obedience. You see, if you disobey your conscience, you can end up with what the Bible calls in Titus 1.15, a defiled conscience. That word literally means a stained or polluted conscience, one that does not operate properly. Or you can end up with what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.2 is a seared conscience. It's like skin that has been burned or calloused, and it's no longer sensitive to right or wrong. Or you can end up with what the Bible calls in Hebrews 10.22 an evil conscience, one that has been falsely programmed, like the criminal who feels guilty when he squeals on his friends, but feels happy when his crime is effective. Why is it important to keep a good conscience? Look at the rest of verse 16. He says, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. A good conscience ensures that those accusations that are made against you will be shown to be false. You've heard someone referred to as being a Teflon person when accusations don't stick. Well, Peter is talking here about a bungee cord person because the accusations made against you will bounce back to the person who made them. The shame intended to be brought on you when you have a good conscience will actually bring shame on the person who made the accusations. But that will only happen if you keep a good conscience because that is the right prevention. Are you experiencing opposition to your faith? How are you reacting? Well, Peter gives us a checklist with which we can grade ourselves. 
Number one is a right passion. Are you passionate about doing good? Two is a right perspective. Do you see suffering as a blessing so that you don't need to despair and you don't need to fear? Third is a right priority. Have you set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your life? Fourth is a right posture. Are you always ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you? And fifth is a right prevention. Are you keeping a good conscience? If we will apply those five things, then we will be able to resist even the most difficult people that we have to deal with in life. I'm going to ask Sergey, and I'm not going to try his last name, to come forward, and after we close in prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity to encourage him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that reminds us that we live in a world that is hostile to you, and if we're going to follow you, we're going to run into some of that resistance. And Father, I pray that we might react properly as you, by your Spirit, enable us to do so. And Father, I pray that we truly might be people who yield to you as Lord of our life and respond as your servants in this difficult environment as we follow you step by step. I thank you for Sergey today, for his salvation this week, and for his obedience in following you in baptism. And as we uh, welcome him into our midst today, we just give you praise for the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.